0: Are you doing uh, the podcast to reach people out there, or are you doing the podcast for an excuse to hang out with people? you know so for me, the whole reason for doing team human I mean the real reason was I guess to platform I felt like my career has reached its peak or is ending as I get old, and I want to use my momentum to platform other people so there's that, but personally, the reason I do it is to sit in a room with people I love and and then model conversation model human contact and to be modeling it over riversiders Casters, like Ugh, i'm just modeling zuckerberg at this point what is modeling human contact well we model for each other so a mother when they have a baby a mother models behavior for the baby that the baby copies like oh this is surprise or oh this is empathy or An example. So like if you, if something frustrating happens while your child is watching, you want to show them, Oh, this is the way I metabolize frustration. If every time something bad happens, you bang your head against the wall, then your child's going to imitate that. And that would be considered modeling a negative behavior right? So if I'm concerned that people in the world are de-socialized or have lost the ability to make eye contact or really listen to each other, then I could do a podcast where I have conversations where I try to show other people, I try to demonstrate a different mode of engagement and people say, oh, wow. So it's sort of like, Either now look, Doug's doing conversational jazz with this intellectual person, or Doug is crying with Duncan Trussell. Why are they crying? What is that? And then it, it just, it engenders a different set of behaviors from people who listen. You can't help but imitate. So if you're listening to Rush Limbaugh or Steve Bannon all day, your conversations are going to take on some of those qualities. This is sort of the wire
1: monkey experiment.
0: Well, you could call it that or you could call it the way people are with each other. Wire
1: <laughs> The analog of like doing this virtually is maybe more the the wire monkey mother. What's the wire monkey? I don't know enough of the specifics. I want to say it was it was one of those like very Brutal behavioral studies that happened in the fifties, and they did. I think they raised two baby monkeys, one with a mother, and then one with like a a wire model of a monkey.
0: Ah, oh, and the wire model of the monkey baby
1: didn't do as well. I would bet you didn't do great. <laughs> did not end well for the wire monkey. I don't know if you've seen the movie Nope yet. It wasn't. It wasn't quite that level, but uh, uh, not a good end game there. Ah, uh, you know we're talking about the Skinner box era of of experiments. Yeah. You're not worried when you're loud, you might be clipping a little bit. I appreciate you being mindful of that. Anytime. I can't help it. I'm, I just <laughs>
0: stare at them
1: <laughs> as a host. <laughs> I think I might just have bad mic etiquette. You're using an SM58 there? I'm not. It's a very directionally sensitive mic. It is very directionally sensitive. Yeah. It's an Audio Technica. It was $99, oh. but is very good. And is very good. $99 is a lot of money when I mean, you think about it.
0: $12 Radio Shack, Mike, gets the job done. So God bless. Well, they're not around anymore, but they're a, they're a crypto now. Did you hear that? Radio Shack became a cryptocurrency
1: brand. Of course I did. You know what I do for a living. I think the shell company that owns Radio Shacks sold them to a bunch of dudes who turned them into crypto things. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you remember this brands, we're gonna do something completely unrelated <laughs> and attempt to capitalize on crypto like that's
0: well, don't you know, the other example when I th- when I see something like that, I think of um when Quentin Tarantino cast uh John Travolta in uh Pulp Fiction. It was like, Whoa, here's this like brand staying alive, the sort of you know, at the time almost kinda washed up 1970s, 80s star. Oh, he was washed off. I mean, Whoa. and he'll, he would probably even admit yeah. that. And it's like bam, but it was like it was perfect for the nostalgia
1: of that of that movie. That might have been a very generous comparison to the Radio Shack doing crypto because <laughs> <it>, that <laughs> turned out for, well for everyone involved, as far as I can tell. I mean, yeah, there were some you know scientological issues in there somewhere, but I don't. Yeah, you know, it was Quentin Tarantino's fault. I mean, it, you know, in the same way we we were talking about. We were talking about, you know, you, you mentioned modeling, but but specifically the kind of the impulse to do your podcast specifically, almost having like ulterior motives. I assume that the story that led up to this new book was a similar example of you thinking like, hey, worst case scenario, I'm going to get an interesting book out of this.
0: Before I left to go there, I was just thinking cash, baby. Okay. Cash. Cause if I'm going to talk to a bunch of, you know, hedge fund guys or whatever they were going to be investors to talk about the digital future, it's two things I'm thinking. I was not thinking I'm going to get something for my book or, or something to write about. Cause I've done so many of these over the years. It's like bankers are pretty predictable, but I've gotten good at lacing a conversation that they think is about how to earn more money with really good Marxist and anarcho syndicalist memes. So I talked to them about how exponential growth, the problem with exponential growth is you end up extracting all the money from your marketplace. And then what do you do? You have to move on to another one and another one. Then what if you run out? And I said, but what if you experiment with finding ways to replenish the marketplace that you're depending on? What would that look like? How would, you know, something more circular, more like a respiratory system, if you. Sure. Or like bottom up, perhaps. Exactly. Or, well, yeah, I don't get that. That, that. that, to give away. But you look at the cybernetic model of feedback and iteration. How do you, you know, how do you keep, rather than take all the poker chips off the table, how do you keep them there longer? How do you keep your poker marks alive long enough to give you even more money over time rather than run them out? It's, <laughs> so stuff, you know, whatever. I, I, I try to lay it or, or, you know, worst case, just, just explain to them why what they're doing is evil. You know, just just beat them up for a while. You know, and sometimes you pick off a couple. You know, a couple come to you and go, you're right. I've got to change my ways. But this one, when it was actually happening, when they start saying, so, Doug, yeah, Alaska or New Zealand, I, I honestly thought I was being punked. I thought that this was like... You know, there's like some people, they make these like, 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 like Ali G kind of things, like these documentaries, whatever, where they get some person, like yes, men, but for evil. Exactly. And I thought they were trying like to show, Oh, look at this guy, Rush He thinks he's also, you know, socially good team human. We're going to get him telling, you know, evil billionaires how to stay alive and how to, you know, put shock collars on their guards and stuff. But no, they were, um, these were serious five, billionaires, serious billionaires, not really technologically that smart because they really didn't know the difference between augmented reality and virtual reality. They didn't know the difference between proof of work and proof of stake. I mean, they really didn't have the basics even in 2018 of what was going on, but they, they were certainly rich. They had internalized the kind of tech bro, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel sensibility without really understanding where it comes from. Or where it leads to. As a fashion statement, almost. As a fashion statement. And they're aware. I mean, they are aware that they're supporting companies where a very ends justifies the means kind of exit strategy based approach. They're aware that if they're investing in a printer company that is breaking its printers after, you know, 50,000 pages or whatever it is under the, under the pretense that there's a sponge that can't be replaced in there. Force
1: obsolescence.
0: Yeah, exactly. They know that they're trying to live off a, a, you know, build a car that escapes from its own exhaust. That it won't work. So they're aware that there's a a a long term consequence to externalizing all this damage. And their actuaries or whoever it is that they use had told them that this is what they told me that there was a twenty percent chance of a global catastrophe in their lifetimes. So they were taking twenty percent of their money and investing it in that hedge. You know everything for them is risk management, so that's one existential risk. And they're paying the money. What do we do? How do we, you know, vertical farming? Uh, Navy
1: seals? What do you do?
0: How do you how do you work one of these? How do you work out at one of these places?
1: I wonder if this is something that you have kind of grappled with in, in your own life, too, that at a certain point, when you're thinking about things expressly in terms of, I don't know, like game theory or, or you know, some kind of some, some hypothetical, does it become really easy to lose the thread and to kind of sacrifice your humanity in service of these these theories? For me or for them? Well, I, um, mostly for them, but also <laughs> for you, because obviously, like, you know, you've studied a lot of things, and at and, and a certain point, and, and we've probably all been guilty of this, that you read a lot of books, and then you kind of lose track of what's important. Well, if you read a lot of books really out of context, you know, I mean, that's, to be
0: fair, is like exactly what they're doing, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like, I don't mean to be elitist, but there there really is something to be said for a good university education. Because, you know, like the Oxford style tutorial is you read these books, but you read them with somebody, you know, with, you know, the professorial equivalent of a Robert Anton Wilson who has been through the chapel perilous, you know, who has dealt with, you read Hume, you read Locke, you read Hobbes. They make me question this. They make me think that if you read it without context, without an elder or someone again, back to someone to model. You end up going, oh, look, Hobbes, really important philosopher, and he says we could just treat the Native Americans like they're part of the landscape and kill them the same way we would cut down a tree or kill a a, a rat. And that's and I understand now because they have a different kind of consciousness than us. They're not fully conscious, so we just kill them all, you know, in order to, to promote our business or c- colonization, right? So you get a Peter Thiel who even took a course with Rene Girard, but totally misunderstood The whole idea of that and thinks that, oh, I get it. You have to transcend the competition. Let them all fight and find scapegoats, but you rise above them, you know, or, or or any of these guys. So they read, they read one thing, but yeah, but what they're also trying to do because in their lives, they understand like the person at the printer company who is going to destroy the world in order to use obsolescent printers, they believe that the whole object of the game is to is to stay one step ahead, to earn enough money by polluting the world with a pile of dead printers, but you can somehow earn enough money to stay ahead of it. So they're looking and cherry picking for philosophies and ideas that justify this kind of zero to one web to live one order of magnitude above everybody else. We are as gods, so we may as well get good at it. You know, th- let's go meta on on their reality. And there's a lot of philosophers who who will talk that way, at least partly, or taking out of context, or just looked at. You know, they can even use Adam Smith to promote libertarianism. And Adam Smith was a, was a moral philosopher. He was a a moralist. He was the one who said land, labor, and capital. It's like. And they take him to mean, even the economist, to mean, oh, he's all about capital. and Don't worry about land and labor. It's like, no, just read the dude and you'll realize this guy's closer to Marx
1: than he is to Ayn Rand. The outcomes that you're talking about here, it sounds to me that the way you're describing their outcome specifically, when you say "stay ahead of it," whether it's bunker or you know colonizing other planets or all, all of these sorts of things we're talking about, versus like actually being a real technocrat and, and hoping that you know you could be involved in the whatever piece of technology or science will actually fix things. Is there any consistency there? I mean, do they they hope that they'll be part of yeah. a positive outcome, yeah, for or sure. they just okay? They're not just a fetus. There's a spectrum. Well, there is, but there's, there's a spectrum, right?
0: So you've got on the one hand, you've got the ones, you know, say Bezos, who's going to do pure white flight, right? Just go in blue origin and take, get off the planet, build Mars, just get off. Or Peter Thiel, you know, just go to the, go, let me, let me seastead out there and live on something self-sovereign. Is he still doing the seasteading stuff? I haven't, I haven't heard much yeah, in a while. On he's still, he's still, um, yeah. And seasteading is, they're kind of back. They got, NASA or somebody kind of acknowledged them in some way, so now they're sort of back on the radar. They've still been building their little pontoon nations. Beautiful. It's like the ultimate libertarian social experiment. If you don't like the laws, you disconnect and and convey your hexagonal raft to a new nation.
1: Obviously, seasteading is different from – you know, colonizing Mars. It's certainly more realistic. But also you have to you have to live in the environment. You have to hope that we haven't killed all the fish, right? Because you're gonna be
0: doing a lot of fishing. Yeah, you're kind of depending on things. But there's another kind. Like you take a tech bro, you know, a regular alienated tech bro, and send them to Burning Man and give them a nice dose of ayahuasca or or let them go down to the Amazon, you know, with a shaman. And in the peak of their experience, you know, just like any of us, Mother Earth will talk to them and say, I'm dying, the climate. oh my God, you know, the mushrooms or the plant, they'll say, you must. But because they're a, a an egotistical, narcissistic, sociopathic tech bro, they hear it as the Earth is speaking to me, and I'm going to go back, and I got a new software stack to solve all of this. What we have to do is control-alt-delete civilization. I've got a. I'm going to sort of build a a Sim City, New Earth 2.0, or Game B, and I've got the whole plan, you know. So yeah, they've got a a kind of a technocratic Great Reset Dominator, you know. I'm going to pre-colonize this next thing, so it may as well be another planet because. And I've talked to so many of these people. They either like like Neom this one they want to build for multiple billions and trillions of dollars in Saudi Arabia, so they can just get the Bedouins off that territory, the ones who've actually been living a sustainable, a sustainable indigenous.
1: For people who don't know, it's this like super skinny city that just goes across the continent, effectively. Yeah. As long as you just stop the migration of the people who've been living there all along.
0: Or a sweet guy, a, a James Ehrlich, who's got you know, an idea for these eco-cities, eco-villages he wants to do. He's a great Stanford smarter than me game. He was a game designer who then learned about organic food and all that. And now he's taking sort of a game designer's vision to building eco-villages. And there's a stack. And it's like, we're going to do our agriculture this way with these, these these big tubes that hold the plastic tubes that hold the topsoil so we don't have to water everything. I mean, don't worry about fungus and mold and everything. Oh, it's just blah, 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 hand wave, hand wave. You know, we've got an education system, we've got an air filtration system, we've got a carbon capture system, we've got this. Oh, you have another idea? We'll add it to the stack. You know, and it's like, there's are just these kind of totalizing understandings of the world. You know, but I, I get it. They're systems theorists, and they pull back and see the system and then think, like Stuart Brand, we are as gods, we may as well get good at it. I'm a systems theorist. i Gregory Bateson. I'm, I embody the
1: unimind and here's how we fix it all on the spectrum of, I guess, techno utopianism to black pill doomer. Where do you find yourself? Oh, I'm optimistic now.
0: Oddly enough, I've gone through. uh, You said now. Yeah. Well, I used to worry that these guys knew something that I didn't. If the, if the wealthiest and most powerful people are preparing for the end then we must really be in trouble. But given how inane and ridiculous their plans for the end are, given that this guy shows me the plans for his underground bunkers with a a fake natural light indoor heated swimming pool, and I tell him, you know, I got a neighbor with a big house and an indoor heated swimming pool, and I see these trucks in front of the house all the time. He's always replacing his filter and his heater and his this. What are you going to do about the, the spare parts for that heated pool? He goes, huh? And he opens this little pad and makes a note, spare parts are heated. It's like, if he hasn't even thought of that, this whole, they're, they're just nuts. If they're, if they hadn't thought about the question I raised for them, which is, I get it. You've got 20 Navy SEALs coming that you've hired to protect you in your bunker. How are you going to keep them loyal after your money is worthless? And they're like, uh, well, then they first they say, well, don't they want to live in there? Don't they want to, to to have all the benefits of being in there? So, yeah, but if they're the ones with the guns, why do they want you in there? You know, and it's like they hadn't thought of these things. It's like read Machiavelli, even read art. You know, these guys that claim they've read Sun Tzu, they don't know the very basics of how how this all works.
1: You would think that would be the one thing they've read is the art of war. <laughs> all those guys.
0: They probably flipped through it the same way they would flip through one of my books or yours. You know what I mean? They flip through these things, but they don't, uh, they can't apply them. You know, that's why they never want my books. They don't want to read the book and actually internalize it. They want me to come for, they'll pay me, you know, a thousand times more than the cost of a book to talk to them for 45 minutes rather than 20 bucks for six,
1: Eight hours of the actual knowledge that they need. But if they read your book, would they be inviting you to speak? If they if they actually like knew the things you were talking about and what you thought and and what you thought about them, do you think they would still invite you to speak? Depends which. A guy like Peter Thiel
0: totally would, right? Peter Thiel, he wants me to come. I want to go to to this thing they do. It's like called like Hereticon.
1: Have you heard of this? It's like Bohemian Grove for Silicon Valley billionaires. Well, not
0: really. It's this. It's this. It's it's slightly alt right, I think. But it's it's like he. They called. They said it's like an intellectual fight club. They do in a hotel in like in Las Vegas or New Orleans, and like a hundred people go. And it's like I would have if COVID hadn't been so bad, and and these people were probably I would guess, or the least COVID-safe group of people
1: you could imagine. If you're like constantly upping your supply of, of young blood, then you probably don't have to worry about COVID.
0: Well, I guess yeah, but they're also more daring. You know, they're more COVID-daring than me. I'm I'm you know a little a little soft, little intellectual Jewish New Yorker who's afraid of things, um, certain things. I mean, I'm, uh, uh, but but I love that he's willing to engage. You know, or that a Musk or any of the the ones who are really they're 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 not afraid to engage. It's only the kind of the, the 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 hedge fund second level folks who are afraid to. And I will admit, after this book came out, two talks I had scheduled canceled.
1: <laughs> 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 but you know, whatever, easy come, easy go. I don't know how much, if at all, you've interacted with Musk on a personal level, but you would include him in that list of people who are willing to, at very least, kind of. Engage in these discussions he is not he ex- totally they're not afraid. he's not afraid he might not do it in public, but he
0: wouldn't he wouldn't yeah, sure, sure. I mean and that on a certain level I, I I like that. I don't like where he's gone though i I feel like he was two or three years ago I felt like he was so much smarter. His sentences were different. something something's happened to him. I'm not sure what it could be the internet, you know that when Trump left the internet, he jumped into that standing wave. That Trump was in that sort of troll in chief role, it could be that that's damaged him, or he could just be taking like too many psychedelics or something. But it, he's not making the same kind of strange sense. You know, he was he was kind of perfect before at saying what he was saying, and now he can't
1: even make his own argument. So I'm 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 concerned about that. You're touching on something interesting here too that. I have, probably you have, I think a lot of people have been thinking about is the sort of the almost porous nature of the alt right, or at least like kind of the the, you know, a MAGA culture, how that overlaps with the strain of libertarianism that Teal practices. And I know that like I know you've been on Rogan's show and I I know that you've talked to him like And
0: I can't get back on there. (laughs) Where does he fall in all
1: I was on there in like twenty thirteen?
0: What role does he play in all this? I mean Rogan is a uh, he's a dangerous innocent. You know, I think he's he's bringing what I would call like the art bell sensibility to the modern questions. But the art bell sensibility was way more appropriate when engaging with people who had been abducted by ufos or witnessed crop circles or
1: you know had made love with sasquatch or something that is the thing that got me hooked on that show i, you know, I used to do radio and I, I would uh i was a station manager and I, I would i would often drive up to the radio station and do these like 3am slots for fun and i had not heard of coast to coast and i was sitting in my car just flipping through am just seeing if anything would come through i heard this conversation this woman was talking about how she was uh visited every night and sexually assaulted by a werewolf spirit and I was like I hope that the signal comes in again and I can find this and listen to this program more because I am hooked nothing better I mean I used to listen to
0: that I was pretty young even and you know the AM radio AM radio dial I mean for people who don't know it was such a weird special thing cuz at night you get stations that you can't get during the day for some ionosphere reason. I don't know if it's still true with pollution. Probably is some night thing happens, and you you tune it with a dial. It's not with a do- not with buttons. There is a dial, so you would slowly reach a station and and you'd find its bandwidth. And it could be like you know, friggin' far away. Like I'm in New York, and it's like this is KA blah 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 in Iowa City, Iowa. And then, you know, and you'd tune it in and you listen to. So you'd be, you know, at night holding an AM radio, listening to someone tell the story of their abduction, you know, and it, there, there was nothing better. But to apply that same kind of both conspiracy theory and openness to information that may be disinformation, that may be filled with real um, anger and rage and largely held Beliefs about you know basements filled with children being you know you know sucked open by you know Jews and globalists and it's like it's sort of like the the beautiful innocent fun wondering in that X Files way about what's going on has dovetailed with a very intentionally uh, uh, propagated set of of conspiracy theories that are are kind of destabilizing to our a very you know a civic fabric so um, i don't think it's not as entertaining it's not as playful as it was as it was before but these are also much more brittle times you can't have a lighthearted wonderful discussion about Gender and identity and race and all those things today.
1: It's just, it's too hard. A lot of that is a product of who you choose to bring on the show. As you said, you're not going on anymore. Anybody kind of left of center at this point, it's like, I mean, you know, you mentioned Duncan Trussell. He probably lines up politically more closely with you, but beyond, you know, a few of his like Austin friends, those, the counterpoint just isn't getting through anymore. Right. Right. And it's hard. I mean, it's hard for that because the counterpoint
0: is, the counterpoint is asking that we preserve and extend this civilization where the tech bros I'm talking about, the billionaires I'm talking about, they're accelerationists. And that, you know, comes out of a a sci-fi novel, but accelerationism is the idea that we have to burn this one down and start again. You know, it's what Bannon is asking. Oh, so Bannon will enlist Gamergate and QAnon, whether he's gonna tell them the truth or not, or tell them stuff he believes or not, he'll tell them anything because the ends justifies the means. If I can say something to these millions of kids that gets them to tear down the system, it's worth it. And it's right because this system is corrupt and it doesn't matter. I know the truth, they're bad. If I've got to tell them that they're pederists, if I got to tell them that they're sucking adrenochrome, if I got to tell them this or that, whatever it is, that the great reset is meant to do this, whatever does it. And that's, um, that's, that's kind of a shame. You know, Art Bell was never about tearing down civilization. He was about opening up the nooks and crannies and helping us wonder and suppose new things to sort of loosen the grip of almost that 1950s Eisenhower consensus reality. I see. Art Bell was like an extension of Operation Mindfuck and Church of the Discordians and Robert Anton Wilson. It it, it was a different, a a different kind of of delightful play. And this is not; these folks are not playing. This is not. This is not a, a joyous. Uh,
1: uh, experiment. We should caveat this by saying that, I mean, to the best of my knowledge, Art Bell had very bad politics. Oh, did he? I didn't know his politics. He didn't talk about them much. But also, he was very good at humoring people. He often right. had a sense of humor about things if they, you know, came across as silly. And mm-hmm. the difference is, I don't know that. You know, granted, like I wasn't a super loyal listener and didn't listen over a very long period of time. But I don't know that if you. M- kind of mapped his own progress that suddenly he started to believe more in vampires or UFOs or ghosts. And Rogan's politics have very clearly been swayed by these conversations, and it's and it's a self-perpetuating right. cycle.
0: Right. And then, of course, you know, whatever the theorist was who came up with the phrase audience capture, you know, you end up in a sort of a feedback loop. I have a bunch of friends who were reasonable. And, you know, I understand in this environment, they'll have like some editor at a magazine would- Cut a paragraph from their piece that they thought was really important. Right? So they, like, oh, fuck that. I'm going to Substack and I'm getting my own audience. And, you know, then they get an audience that ends up kind of feeding into a, one side of their personality and not the other. And I understand that's the way these silos work. It's why it's, I mean, it's hard to work with other people. And I also hate it when I have an important idea and my editor says, you know, Doug. That's not really supported enough, or uh, we're, not, we're not ready to say that on our pages. And it's like, usually they're right. I hate to admit it. Usually they're right, that it's an idea that's not ready for prime time. It's fine for the jazz stage, but it's not ready for the main stage. And you've got to accept that when you're working on the main stage, you are influencing culture, but there's certain things that you got to figure out. How am I really going to say this? And until, and the editors are there to be your surrogate audience. Say, yeah, you're not really, it's not going to work. Don't take your ball and go home. Learn to work with other people. And, and believe me, you, this whole billionaire's piece that I wrote, that's, you know, thrown my career into this new, I was done. I was ready to just be a professor, then write this piece. And all of a sudden. It was a guy Aaron Gell. I don't know if you know him. He was an editor. It, he's been in a bunch of places. He was originally my editor at Hemispheres, right Brighton for uh, American Airlines and then then the New York Observer, then here. Then he was at Medium, and I wrote this piece about the tech bro mindset, and at the end of the piece as a throwaway, I said, "You know, I even went to do a talk for these guys, it turned out to be five billionaires, and all they wanted to know was strategies for their for their apocalypse bunkers." And he calls me up and he goes, "Doug, That's not a throw. That's your lead. I'm like, no, it's not a lead. That's crazy. That's insane. He goes, that's why it's the lead. Put it up in the top now. So he re, re he, and it was like three weeks. He remakes. No, it's more important. Then what happened? Then what happened? So this piece that was about one thing becomes about this thing. I'm like, all right. All right. Give me my, give me my $800 now. I did your fucking thing the way you want it. And then it's like, Two and a half million hits later, I'm like, thank you, Aaron for doing
1: that. That's it. At the end of the day, you have to understand that- Other people
0: make us better. Other people make us better. And that I have the tech bro mentality of, oh, I'm me. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to stand apart from everybody else and cast down my wisdom from on high. It's like we all fall into it sometimes, especially online and
1: computers. You don't want to work, but also- you know you have to understand that there's a reason why you've surrounded yourself with the people that you've surrounded yourself with like you have chose them because you believe that they are the 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 smartest person for that specific job and sometimes you just have to um well, you make it sound like it's a choice. I mean, the fact is
0: most of us are surrounded by people who are willing to be with us. You know, it's not like I could go and look at, Oh, where do I, do I want the New York Times to be my people? Or the Atlantic or
1: Hoppers? You know, but if you've worked with an editor for a long time, I mean, there's,
0: there's, right. there's a reason That's for that. That's true. But it's also because they like me. And I, I mean, the, 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 it's a, well, it's, it's, I mean, it's both a good thing at, and, and, we we work with the people who are willing <laughs> willing to come back.
1: I was talking to somebody last night, and this isn't like a super insightful or novel thing to say, but it's clear that every generation, probably since the dawn of humankind, has believed that they were going to be the last. Whether it was like revelations yes. or nuclear weapons in the Cold War, so this this kind of survivalist the, the mindset that this bunker thing is there a historical precedent for it.
0: Yeah, and the milliner, the millenarians, and there's always been sort of apocalypse bunker movements. But I mean, never before, I guess, two things: never before have people believed they were going to survive it without like Christ or a chariot coming down to carry them home. Although you could argue that Kurzweil uploading his brain or Musk going to Mars are as. Mythological, as Christ coming to save them. I mean, they're they're as uh, uh, I'm not going to say preposterous because I think I think there's more probability that Christ would come in the chariot to to take people off their roofs than Elon Musk being able to terraform Mars. You know, in the next 300 years.
1: And you're Jewish, so that <laughs> puts it. I'm in the Jewish. Thing. Yeah.
0: So exactly but so was so was Jesus. So um, I'd welcome him. I'd be fine with that. I've got no problem with them being right and us getting saved. But I don't know if I get to go there. Is there. It's I don't have the ticket. But the difference is that never before, I don't think, have the people who think they're going to get saved also been the ones who are making the very catastrophe that they're escaping from. That these are, this is the externalized damage of the very things they are doing. That's why I keep saying it's like they want to build a car that drives fast enough to escape from its own exhaust. It's, it's that, that they, that this is end stage colonial capitalism and that it's still not a done deal, that there's still such a big choice in the matter. It's like, okay. We can pedal to the metal, destroy this place in order to get to or have to, to escape, or we can make this world a place that we don't have to escape. And, and, and I keep thinking, and I understand this even from, from my own experience, I, I, my, my dad you know, my dad's family escaped the pogroms in Kishinev, right? They had a run, and I get that. Then they lived in the tenements in the Lower East Side. And my dad used to talk about how, you know, they all bathed in one like big tub bucket in the kitchen and they slept six to a bed and they were so poor and they were cold and, and he went to school and worked hard and earned money so he could get out of that bad neighborhood and raise his kids somewhere better. And that's internalized. I get that. So you live in a bad neighborhood, you make money and get out of it. But what if the world is the bad neighborhood? Where do you, where do you go? And what if the neighborhood is only bad because of the really shitty business practices that you're engaged in? Because every business that you're a part of, every technology that you're running has an exit strategy, right? They're built with the presumption of exit. That's, that's, And that's why I go talk to billionaires. That's what I'm trying to explain to them, that this whole hockey stick exponential growth thing doesn't work. The only thing in nature that grows exponentially is cancer. And then it kills its host. So- Do we is that is that the kind of business that you want to run, and how can you unwind that?
1: This is probably a parallel that a lot of people have have drawn before, but it's really just kind of occurring to me as one you were discussing accelerationists, and then I guess evangelicals in terms of I think about the kind of the very I don't want to say tenuous, but the relationship between evangelicals and the state of Israel they're accelerationists in in a way. They're hoping to bring about Temple Mount and the Red Heifer and all that stuff. It's the same thing.
0: It's the same, you know, and what I look at it as, as very Aristotelian, very Western. It's the, you know, crisis, climax, sleep, male orgasm curve of narrative dramatic Fiction, you know, and and I get it. Everyone's aching for the finish, for the thing. It's all the tech bros watch Marvel movies, and they all want the end game. You know, it's like, but you know, read James Carse, brilliant, recently passed religion professor from NYU, wrote a book called Finite and Infinite Games, and the whole point is that you know, most of us play finite games that you play in order to win and then the game is over. Infinite games are games that you play in order to keep the game going. Like fantasy role-playing games, the success of an FRP is how long... Oh, we played that one for six years. That means it was a successful game. And I think we're at a stage of humanity where the idea is not to get to the end. It's not to break on through to the other side or find a new continent or get to the new world, because where is is pretty much it? But rather, how do we now sustain this now that we're here? You know, and that means taking a very different approach to business, to technology, to society, to one another. But it's hard because we ache for conclusion. We, we are, we are, we are made anxious by the idea of things just going on somehow. But, but that's why you got to practice something like Tantra. It's like Tantra. It's like it's a different kind of sex for people who don't know, where the object is to like be in this state with the person or with yourself rather than climax, rather than don't get to that. You stay in this thing. And even if you just are even as bad at it as I am, you go like, Oh, now I'm in a different place. Ooh, now I'm in another different place. And it's like the object of the game is to be in that place with this person. It's like, ooh, this is great. And yes, it ends up more like a David Lynch movie than a Marvel movie. What just happened? I don't really know. But it was really weird, wasn't it? And that's the delight of being human. I'm not selling books here. I should be selling books. Oh, no. I'm not selling books. We're just talking here weird. Buy my book, please. Buy my book. Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. It will make you laugh and sing and cry and dance. Okay,
1: back to conversation now in believing that you're the last generation in that intrinsic in that belief is well, yeah, no, it's hubris. It's not optimism. It's It's hubris from the standpoint that if you are in fact, the last generation, isn't there a sense in which you are sort of at the height or the peak or the apex of human evolution?
0: Yeah. Except, you know, it's not really like that. It's like, so what was the last people in Rome, you know, when like us, they realized that they were poisoning themselves with lead. Um, and Caligula was just going on, you know, whatever you want to call it, rampages, and that was not the that was not a time to envy, right? That was a that was bad. And no, we're not gonna we're not, however cool we think we are, we're not gonna end the whole thing. It, it's the climate catastrophe is happening now. The cascading things are happening now, and you see the way they're gonna go. It's way more like Rachel Carson, Silent Spring. There's diseases and autoimmune stuff and forest. It's, they're going to, it's not that hard for nature to wipe out two thirds or three quarters, whatever it is of humanity in order to kind of shake us off and, and restore a new climate equilibrium. There'll be all sorts of other issues to deal with, but. It's not going to be the end of everything, not for a long time anyway, but it is going to be, if we don't, it's going to be you know, unnecessarily painful, unnecessarily violent. You know, right now, don't go, but I was going to say go to Pakistan. Consider Pakistan and how many people are up to their waists in water right now. You know, it's happening. We're soaking in it. Yeah, or Kentucky not too long ago. Right, right. Poor dear Trent, dear Trent, but they're still voting. They're still voting for Trent. So, or whatever. Lot is not Trent. Lot, there's who? What's his
1: name now in Kentucky? Who's that guy? Mitch and Rand are the two. Uh, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's so, it's so bizarre. And then you talk to the tech bros who think that they're running civilization. I talked to Peter Thiel, I mean, I've, I have friends that do dinners with him and stuff up in his Montana place, along with Tucker Carlson and, and and you know, all the evil people. And Peter Thiel, his thing is, he's concerned that the US government um, and the neoliberal left is kind of selling out our data to China, you know, who are going to be bad to us, rather than siding with, you know, Russia and other Christian nations you know, to bring them. It's like, you think that's really, you think that's what's going
1: on and that's, oh my gosh. All right. Good luck with this. Let's talk about some lessons learned from the pandemic. I mean, the the first one that I really, that I think relates to this in a really profound way is this realization that a lot of people had. When most of us were holed in to our homes for a year, year and a half, two years, that nature started being okay again. And, And it was like, it, it brought into sharp relief, you know, how well the rest of the world will do if we wipe ourselves out. Well, nature is very resilient.
0: It is. Nature is resilient, more resilient than people, probably certainly more resilient than our than our our, our social and civic systems. To to an extent, it was interesting. I mean, I remember, like in the height of COVID. Bezos is doing his kind of blue origin, white flight, you know, thing. Two seconds
1: in the ionosphere or whatever it was.
0: Yeah, exactly. And everybody worshiping him like, oh, great. You did something with... One man can now do something, has enough money to do something that we could all do collectively 60 years ago. Yay. Okay. So what? what's more efficient? You know? (laughs) know. But while he's up there, it's like, Germany was getting flooded by like 100,000-year unprecedented floods. California was on fire. You know, the fish are still irradiated from Fukushima. And I was just like, wow, it's bizarre. So, yeah – um, on a certain level, I was feeling like, "Oh, good, you know, you know, your trees are growing again, and the ocean is getting cooler because we're sitting at home. How easy it is!" But the, the beauty of it was, to me, was less how resilient nature is, because still we're losing zillions of species every day, and, and it might be cascading and, and and irreversible. But what was interesting to me was how easily we could reduce our total energy expenditure how easy it would be if we decided to take, let's have all of the Western world take Sabbath for two days a week. So two days a week, you don't drive anywhere. You don't use machines. You don't buy or sell. You just walk around your neighborhood, meet people, have sex, play cards, have conversations, play softball, just do stuff. If we did that with just two days a week, it would have such a huge measurable impact on energy expenditure it would also sorry crash the economy right? it would cr- as we know it it would crash the growth based economy so then when you look at it and i know it's a mile high view but when you look at it from my perspective humanity feels so obligated to meet the needs of a digital balance sheet that we are willing to destroy the planet and our lives for it right we are literally converting atoms into bits that's what Bitcoin is we're going to burn planet in order to create digital bits and that's insane that's insane you know that when the when the, when the Martian anthropologists look down and say what are they doing oh they're burning the planet as a way of worshiping a digital coin that's what they're they will realize, okay, that th- they were mad. They were they were
1: nuts. This is worse than Ark Bell crazy, right? This is something else. Speaking of the mile high view, do you remember what Bezos's overview effect was? No, what did he say? I can make more money. No, what did he? Say? <laughs> <laughs> he went and you know whatever border of space he got to. Probably most people are aware, but the overview effect is this idea that when you see that earth from space that you have this sort of profound realization. And I, the sense that a lot of people were talking to him about the overview effect and as somebody who is <laughs> like, yeah, well, as somebody who, you know, clearly has more money than he knows what what to do with, I think that has a huge impact on like everything, obviously. And and I think it's probably pretty easy to sort of lose humanity that he felt like he needed to have an overview effect that, that when he came back to earth and the press interviewed him that he needed to say something profound. And what he said was, or his consultant, what his consultants told him to say was, I don't even think that's because it is (laughs) so inane, isn't the right word, but it, it, but it's, it's on brand. He said, I think that we need to move all heavy industry into space. Oh, right. Right.
0: Right. As long as it's not so heavy to get it up there. I mean, Because if we move all heavy industry to space, it's like
1: we need a whole lot of fuel to get it up there. Yeah. It's in the name. (laughs) Yeah. What is your take on what that being his overview effect says about him? It is interesting. I mean, it's that of the
0: conquistador of the colonizer, you know, so he looks at space as a place to continue the westward. Effort to colonize new things, you know. There's asteroids up there, you know. Let's junk, let's junk up the rest of this <laughs> galaxy. But I get it. He looks up there and he says, "Look, I got up here. It's not that hard, you know." And and to be fair, if you did it in a light way, right? So you send up a couple of little robots to these asteroids, and then the robots mine for ore so you're not sending up the heavy stuff you make the stuff out of the asteroid so you make mining equipment out of an asteroid that then further mines the asteroid you know so there's there's yeah
1: i i buy it but not now but yeah what really got me about it you're looking down on earth and you and i assume that he believes that climate change is real based on what i know about him yeah that's the impact he looks down on Earth, realizes that we're like polluting everything and what we need to do mm. in space. But he's skipping an important step, which is he is the oftentimes the richest person on Earth and could probably do something to address this stuff short term before we have the resources to send plants into space. Yeah,
0: they can't balance though. They all have that sort of Nick Bostrom long-termism thing in their heads that it's worth – sacrificing the well-being of the eight billion who are alive today on behalf of the multi-trillions who will be living throughout the galaxy in the future which it's, it's an ends justifies the means uh, uh almost you know bizarrely a medieval Christian denial of self for the next the next thing but what they don't realize is that's also a sociopathic model um there's there uh, I've come to believe that the best way to navigate towards a, a just future is to enact justice in the present. Actually do it. Walk the walk right now. It's not about sacrificing others for the thing or even sacrificing yourself for the thing. You know, people, when I talk about like degrowth as a policy, they're like, oh, you want to sacrifice? That's so self-degrowth. Actually, I know I'm talking about living fun lives, but degrowth, I could work less fuck more you know play eat natural food work on an organic farm i mean it's hard stuff but it's so much more satisfying to to have your hands in the soil again rather than depend on you know long supply chain industrial agricultural genomic you know Monsanto poison this is this is when i when i got community supported agriculture i had one of those subscriptions and my mom came over for dinner and she's eating the salad and she goes wow this salad tastes like lettuce did when I was a little girl. And it was almost broke my heart that for like 30, 40 years, she's eaten the, you know, the crap from the, from the supermarket rather than
1: stuff that comes out of the ground with minerals in it. And a very important caveat to this idea of their notion of, as you said, sacrifice self or sacrifice for the next thing is that is there's a built-in assumption that they are not sacrificing themselves, that they they are going to live through it. Well, then that changes the math considerably, right? Right.
0: That those people must suffer for these. Uh, right. So if I'm an individual and it's all the same to me, I'm going to be on my yacht with a service yacht no matter what. Do I want to make this 8 billion people's lives well, or do I want to be remembered by the next $20 trillion that
1: I made their lives great. You know, I think they take the latter. But even more immediate than that is, Oh, well I have the resources so I can build the bunker or I'm the one colonizing space. So like I quite literally am going to survive this thing. Yeah. Your notion of sacrifice is really different if you are not sacrificing yourself or you don't believe that you are. Right. That's true. I see what you mean.
0: That they, that they, that they, I mean, that it's, they got no skin in this game, right? Because they're going to be fine anyway. They're going to be insulated or they're going to be, they're going to believe they've uploaded their consciousness to this next place and they'll watch from up there. You know, they're, they're, they do believe that they're existing, that they've leveled up, that they're existing one order of magnitude or more above us mere masses. And they look at us, at, at, if anything, they look at us the same way that Bannon looks at all the QAnon kids. We are just iron filings moving between their magnets, you know, and, and we, are, we are fodder. We are – it was Hobbes who looked at the Native Americans and said they, they're no different from trees or deer or rocks. You can kill them or enslave them. It's just – it's what it is. They're part of nature. And they look at nature as, as Francis Bacon told us at the beginning of empirical science, you know, I'm going to give you the tools to take nature by the forelock, hold her down and submit her to your will. You know, that's what science was for. And that's, you know, they still haven't changed that basic game plan.